0: I'm Charlie Rudd, I'm the Group CEO of Leo Burnett, Fallon and Publicist Pope. My leadership lesson is authenticity. What has got you to the level that you are now at is yourself. You just need to do more of that to keep going into the CEO role.
1: Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's Editor. On today's episode, CEO Charlie Rudd talks us through how he pulled off the impressive turnaround of ad agency Leo Burnett. We ask whether dynamic pricing is an effective strategy for businesses, and we also discuss the company that has not one but four chief execs. That's all on the Leadership Lessons agenda. With me are MTS Antonia Garrett Peel and Ailish Cronin. First, let's talk about dynamic pricing. Get yourself down to a Stonegate-owned pub such as Slug and Lettuce, Craft Union, or Be at One after work and you might be in for a nasty surprise. Your pint will now cost 20p more than it would if you'd sneaked in a lunchtime bevy. Britain's largest pub group has introduced Dynamic Pricing, the practice of regularly fluctuating consumer prices. It says in order to cover the cost of hiring more bar staff and bouncers and buying more polycarbonate glasses to cope with high demand periods. The move is divided opinion. Some say it's a smart move to increase revenue. Others, often the consumers, feel like they've been swindled. As Paul Simpson writes in his feature on MT, although some have described the policy as a Uberization of beer, Uber is upfront about its charges, whereas the price of the same drink could vary from one round to another, or even, if you're seriously unlucky, while a round is being ordered. And as Private Eye wrote in its definition, dynamic pricing could be one modern strategy by pubs, theatres, taxis, etc., to increase the price of goods in relation to current demand, as in, our new dynamic pricing structure reflects market conditions and streamlines the customer experience or two, archaic, theft. As in, I was dynamically priced yesterday and they got away with everything in my wallet. Now, consumer expert, Harry Wallop, defended the policy saying, the pub is trying to reduce the crush in the pub at the busiest time and encourage you to go at a quieter time. So is this growing trend of dynamic pricing a good option for businesses to boost their bottom line or is the risk of a consumer backlash too great?
2: Part of me is sort of inclined to think that kind of with the sustained period of high inflation that we've seen over the last two years, we're all actually just becoming quite used to stomaching price increases. And as long as the variations aren't kind of wild, then we will all adapt to dynamic pricing in venues such as pubs quite quickly. On the other hand, Paul highlighted a February 2023 survey by online platform vendor Captero that found that 52% of US consumers equated dynamic pricing with price gouging. Now, this term greedflation has been bandied about a lot amid the cost of living crisis. And whether or not there's any substance to it, I think definitely some consumers do kind of suspect businesses of exploiting inflation to widen their margins. And perception, as we know, is what matters. So in this context, I think There are risks inherent in any strategy that makes pricing less transparent, as consumers may feel that they're being cheated, whether or not the price variation is actually fairly nominal.
3: I do think, though, that there are a lot of customers that are pretty savvy and will already be acutely aware of dynamic pricing, although they may not know that that's what it's called. They might not know the technical term for it. For customers who often have to shop around and price compare when balancing their budgets, a shop suddenly increasing their prices or a pub suddenly increasing their prices might not come as much of a shock. I think the customers that might be particularly affected by this are middle earners who have become very comfortable with the price of certain products or certain brands from certain stores. Businesses, I think, that serve this section of society may have a a slightly harder job of communicating this because customers have become... I suppose reliant on these prices, and now will suddenly have to adjust how they're spending their money. I think a lot of it boils down to what you said, Antonia, at the beginning about the
1: um, the variation in the price difference. Because I think certain groups will not even notice a twenty p increase in a pint, whereas there are others, as you mentioned, Alish, that will be very aware of any sort of price increases. So I think. Perhaps we were willing to accept a smaller price increase, but if it starts getting ridiculous, like some of the um, examples with Live Nation and Ticketmaster and these kind of real like, you know, prices going up by thousands. I mean, at that point, I think it's a completely different story. What companies often get wrong, according to McKinsey, is that they don't know and they don't even investigate how their prices are perceived by customers before they change them. I think that's not entirely their fault because sometimes getting real data is actually difficult because these sort of traditional willingness to pay surveys may be distorted by the respondent overstating their intentions because they don't want to look cheap or understating them because they don't want to look profligate. And in Paul's piece, he interviews a consultant called Rafi Mohammed, who said businesses need to clearly explain a new pricing strategy to customers before it is implemented. And there is a discussion point here, I think, about whether consumers will be willing to accept some of these price rises if they understand you know what's driving it behind the scenes if it's just a kind of big company tries to squeeze more profit out of customer then that's obviously not as acceptable as if there's a kind of very clear need for a business to um, cover costs what do you think about that
3: you're just going back to what you were saying about the situation with companies such as live nation and Ticketmaster, and i think concert tickets are already expensive enough and there are certain groups of people, particularly younger people, who already feel priced out of these events. And I think we're perhaps more willing to accept price rises, as you said, if we know what's going on behind the scenes. You see it a lot on on social media. If you follow particularly small businesses that are run by women, people of colour or charities, and they communicate that they need to increase their prices, they tend to generate a lot more sympathy because they're very open about we need to pay our people, cost of living crisis is hurting our staff, or we're a much smaller team. So there's a lot more sympathy for those organizations, those small businesses. Whereas companies that are on a much bigger scale, there is this sort of perceived image of them just being greedy and just wanting all of our money Mm. and also places like supermarkets as well I think that's a little bit of a kind of grey area because we can see and interact with the cashiers and the people that work in the store so there might be a little bit more sympathy there because there might be this perceived idea of well they're increasing prices because of the cost of living crisis is hurting the business and therefore they need to pay their staff more Although that's not always the case. <laughs> no, but um, I think that's an
1: interesting point that if you actually interact with the business and you see the kind of the staff, that might be a different matter mm. to somebody that's sitting behind in a big building and you're mm. not really sure what's happening. I do think, and that's it's the point about banks here as well, that... Companies are very quick to raise prices, Mm. but there's a perception anyway. They're quick to raise prices, but they're not very quick to drop them. And so I think there probably would be a lot more consumer acceptance if they knew that those prices were then going to come down if the conditions changed. But that rarely happens. Mm. And I think that's what we've seen about the anger over the banks not passing on the lower interest rates to customers.
2: I think Paul mentioned in the piece that there are some kind of price variations, if you like, that we're more willing to accept. So, for example, students getting lower travel prices. However, I think one risk with this type of policy is that it could kind of penalise particular groups who might be less equipped to take on these price increases. So, for example, where you might imagine that a kind of more moneyed pensioner who perhaps doesn't have a mortgage or any rent might be able to sort of head down to the pub on a Friday afternoon. There's plenty of workers who might be on quite low incomes who won't be at liberty to do that and might be forced to go to those venues during peak hours. So it's a difficult one. I think that organizations really need to think carefully about where these price increases are going to fall.
1: I think that's true. I mean, peak time is a peak time for a reason, because it's the time most people are able to do that. So I think companies do have to think very carefully before they implement this strategy about the kind of hidden consequences of, of those price rises. And also just the perception of consumers about your business and whether you're doing the right thing by them and whether they're going to believe what you're saying. And so perhaps the question is not, if we vary prices by X, will we increase revenue by Y? But actually, it will be, if we tell customers we are increasing prices by Y because of X, Will they believe us? Now, Antonia, you interviewed Palladium's leaders recently and they have a very unusual setup.
2: Yes, yeah, so I recently spoke to Sinead McGill and Jose Maria Ortiz. Now, Sinead and Jose Maria are co-CEOs of global advisory firm Palladium, a job that they share with two others. Yep, that's right. The firm is led by four CEOs. Palladium, which among other things works with governments as a contractor to kind of deliver their foreign aid programs, implemented the structure in August, so it's still fairly new. So the way that it works is that each co-CEO heads up a corporate function and they then bring strategic decisions to the table to discuss together. They also all retain their day jobs. Each is responsible for a particular market and drives a specific p and that's a profit and loss statement. So no doubt there's a lot of scepticism around the idea of multiple CEOs that might drive hesitancy among companies to try this model. So for example, concerns that it could lead to conflict, inconsistency and slow decision making. Sinead and Jose Maria raised an interesting point though. They argued that there's, in a sort of conventional leadership structure, a very real threat of a CEO getting bogged down in these duties and becoming disconnected from the market, as they put it. They say that by sharing CEO responsibilities between them, they're able to stay closer to the market, their clients and teams. And that in turn, this makes the business more agile by enabling them to take decisions quickly and react faster to developments, giving them a competitive edge in their view. So co ceoship is still relatively unusual. And I actually haven't come across any other examples of a leadership quartet, but there are a significant number of companies that have tried it, including some well-known names such as Netflix, Salesforce, and Chipotle. And one, Harvest business review study, which looked at 87 companies that were jointly led at some point between 1996 and 2020, found that nearly 60% of firms outperformed peers when co-CEOs were in charge. And overall, when this arrangement was in place, companies generated an average annual shareholder return of 9.5%, which was significantly better than the 6.9% baseline.
1: Well, that's really fascinating because most of the time people would expect you know more than one CEO just to get bogged down in bureaucracy and never ending decisions and not having the agility and the speed to do it. And I, I think it's fascinating how they would actually make that work in practice because it sounds fantastic, but just they would have to trust each other implicitly that they're going to make the right decision if they're making a decision without, you know, talking to the others. And I can just, just the politicking between them, like how do they make Mm. sure they've got that kind of really genuine
3: relationship between the two, between the four of them. And four is quite a large number. Sometimes you hear of a duo of CEOs, but four, that's quite a significant number as well. And as you said, there has to be implicit trust there that, not only that they're going to make the right decisions for the business, but they're not also competing with each other, Mm -hmm. even though that they're for sharing the load, as sometimes you do see there is one that some people are more power hungry than others. And there's always those concerns that they might want to push some people out Mm -hmm. or, you know, they might be conspiring against other people. So it's
2: how do they trust each other enough to avoid those concerns? Mm. I agree. Well, they kind of actually turn that a bit on its head and they say that, you know, the old saying goes that it's lonely at the top, but it's not lonely when there's four of you. And one thing that Sinead said, um, which kind of struck me, was when you want to verbalize a problem or you want to really think an issue through, it's nice to know that there are three people that you can get on the phone with and with complete candor talk it out. And she said that for most CEOs, they're not going to go to their board and share everything and they can't go to their team and do the same. And so she said, that's lonely and we don't have that loneliness. And it's a good point because in a way it is a very unique and isolated position. Like there might be different people that you can share various different sort of elements of a problem with as the CEO, but to have people who you can talk about with complete candor, as Sinead puts it, that's not really something that you kind of typically get as the CEO
3: and i suppose uh, as a ceo you do have your c-suite but you're still the one in charge all of those decisions fall solely on your shoulders so sharing that load between you know you've got four people who are on equal footing to share that load as they say you've got three other people there to fall back on or speak completely honestly to rather than even though there are other people in the c-suite they're still technically your subordinates even though they've also got chief in their job title, if it's just one chief exec, you are still the sole responsibility of that business. It's interesting listening to this discussion
1: because um, on this week's episode, we interviewed Charlie Rudd, who's the group chief exec of ad agencies, Leo Burnett, publicist Polk and Fallon. And he makes this exact point about perhaps the biggest surprise he has had since taking over the leadership role is the loneliness, because at some level there are decisions that only he can make. And there are some things he has to keep quiet and he's not able to share things with everybody, as I'm sure lots of CEOs find when they're in those positions. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see this sort of four CEO model. And whether it actually works and how long it will work for <laughs> before one of them chooses to uh, split it up. So, as I said, the interview this week is Charlie Rudd. Two weeks after he took over as chief executive of Leo Burnett in 2019, campaign said the agency was performing poorly. Four years later, and with the pandemic in the middle, campaign has now crowned Leo Burnett Creative Agency of the Year. So, I spoke to Charlie about how he managed the turnaround. Some interesting points he made. For him, it's all about the people and not the numbers because he has finance people to deal with the numbers. He sees himself as a talent manager. He also focuses on small wins. So that person was going to leave and now they're not. We made that piece of work for a client that we didn't think we'd be able to do. We hired that person that we wouldn't have attracted before. And you celebrate as you go along. You don't wait until that kind of big goal is achieved. And when he goes into a business, he looks for the positives you know, what is the company doing well, and places his attention on that. And that kind of helps to kind of grow that part of the business. And he talks about creating a kind of beacon of good work, which then attracts other people towards it and acts as a sort of role model and sort of showcasing um, how other people should be behaving as well. Um, and I think that's a really nice way of achieving positive impact overall without having to just focus on the negative, because I think the natural tendency would to be, you know, as humans, we focus on the negative. So, The natural tendency would be to go in and try and fix all the things that are broken. But instead, it's this put the focus on the positive. And he said it's also a much nicer way of living your life, (laughs) which I completely agree with. He also tells us why you should never run to a meeting. And I'm going to leave that hanging as a little teaser for you. (laughs) So that's it for this week. Now on to the interview with Charlie Rudd. Great, so i'm here with charlie rudd thank you so much for joining us charlie can you introduce yourself to the listeners who are you
0: and what do you do? Hi Kate, yeah, I'm delighted to be here. I'm Charlie Rudd. I'm the CEO of Lea Burnett, Publishers Poke and Fallon.
1: Great. Now, I first met you in 2015 when you're about to take your first CEO position at Ogilvy and that was probably quite a long time coming because you'd been at BBH before that for 17 years and various sort of high-level roles, latterly as the Chief Operating Officer and this was you kind of stepping into your first sort of big CEO role. Now, if you will indulge me, in my piece that was published in Campaign at the time, I wrote there are two things you should know about Charlie Rudd. The first is that it is impossible to find anyone who will say a bad word about him. Those who have worked with him seem to genuinely adore him. And the second is his nickname, Rudd Adair, which is a nod to the American oil well firefighter, Rudd Adair. And Rudd has acquired the moniker for his ability to handle any situation, however tough, with a cool head. Now, it's eight years later. (laughs) I, I still can't find anyone to say a bad word about you. And particularly in your latest role at Leo Burnett, you've shown you've got the capability and the steel to lead an impressive turnaround, notably taking Leo Burnett from a poorly performing agency in 2019 to this year being crowned Creative Agency of the Year by campaign. So I'm genuinely delighted that you've done it. And I think you're also a great example that you don't need to be kind of an egomaniac, kind of that macho, aggressive, horrible boss to get success. So that's the nice words over. (laughs) Now we can get into it.
0: Thanks. It was was nice to hear all that. It was nice to hear all that, but thank you, Kate. And, um, (laughs) And I think definitely the sort of hearing you mention the Rudder Dare thing, given everything that we've all been through as individuals over the last few years, but particularly as leaders through a pandemic, we've definitely been tested to see how we're good at dealing with crises, certainly.
1: Absolutely. So I want to almost pick up from where we left off then in 2015. I know we've met several times since then, but if I had met you six months into that first CEO tenure, what would you have said was different about being in the top role compared to the senior roles that you previously held?
0: It's a good question. And I think the thing about being a CEO that I think probably was a bit of a surprise for me, because obviously, as you said, I've been in senior positions at BBH for many years, but hadn't been a CEO. And so I, I think I got a close view of CEOs and what they do. But I think one of the things that I realised being actually a CEO for the first time is there is a degree of loneliness And by the way, I'm absolutely a massive believer in ultimately the way you certainly run an advertising agency, but probably many other businesses is through a leadership team and the CEO isn't doing it all, isn't the leader. Ultimately, the team runs the business. But the CEO does have that ultimate responsibility that means that certain things you do need to keep to yourself or think about yourself. Whereas when you're not the CEO, it's sometimes easier to have those kind of conversations and thoughts with a group of people. But when you're the CEO, I think you're conscious that sometimes you can't disclose what you're thinking until the right moment. So it's not lonely in this sort of emotional sense, but there's a sense of sometimes having to think things for yourself a bit more and dealing with that. But obviously, ultimately, then working it through with your team.
1: Mm, I think that's a really interesting point. There's a lot of talk about bring your whole self to work, et cetera. And I, personally, I just don't think that works in, in a leadership context. I, I mean, completely agree with not having a kind of false persona and, you know, making sure that you're feeling like a human being and you kind of are relating to people genuinely. But I think as a leader, you're kind of having to set the environment. And that requires some level of sort of self-control and performance to an extent.
0: Yeah, I think you're being read rightly. You know, you you know that people are reading you the whole time in terms of what you're saying, how you're reacting, how you behave. and that's a responsibility that I'm really happy to have. But you just, and I think almost increasingly senior people know that you know they set the tone for meetings, they set the tone for the people around them. But I think it's more than that as the CEO. People are read, almost over-reading every eye roll raised eyebrow and so therefore you have to be careful with what you're talking about not to the extent exactly where you're sort of false at all i mean i think hopefully i'm incredibly transparent but there are certain times when you just need to keep stuff to yourself <laughs> and not disclose what even you're thinking so i think that's just something that i think i probably haven't quite clocked that sense of responsibility until i got the job but that's it's fine and and i think it is just understanding that i was told some time ago at bbh one of the mantras of senior when you became a senior leader there was never run anywhere because people panic and go why are you running why are you running and so when you're late for a meeting you just don't run because no one knows it's just because you're late for a meeting it's something that's massive and because that's people are overreading the situation uh, <laughs> so i think just learn, learning to live with that is quite important
1: <laughs> i like that don't run to meetings that makes sense <laughs> so how did you find your google Bee experience
0: it was brilliant for me it was brilliant i think for me obviously i wanted to see having had those senior roles maybe i actually wanted to see how I could be actually as a CEO, be equally important to me was being a CEO in a different place where I don't have the infrastructure and and frankly, the sort of latent goodwill that existed for me, having been somewhere 17 years, I wanted to go somewhere different without the sort of infrastructure support I was used to, genuinely to test myself and see if I could do it. And I I felt very pleased. We had a lot of success, got got nominated for Agency of the Year, which Ogilvy had never been nominated before. So I was sort of, we had a lot of success, won a lot of, significant bits of business, such as Vodafone, British Airways, and Boots. And it was a great time to see what I could do. I learned a lot about myself as a leader, I think. And in some respects, I think it sort of actually meant that when I came to Leah Burnett, I had tremendous self-belief. And that helps when you're going into a place which might be a bit challenged and difficult. It doesn't make it any easier, but at least you're you're not phased by it. Because it's sort of some parts, some things I came into were at least a bit familiar.
1: Mm, That's true. It's an interesting thing to push yourself forward because 17 years at BBH, it's, you know, a very nice agency as well. You could have stayed there. It's got the success. So is that something that you do? Do you always push yourself forward into these situations, difficult situations?
0: You know, obviously, an ECEO, I'm very ambitious about the business that I'm working in and working for. And I think within that, ambitious for myself, and I'm very... I am extremely extremely and although I sort of hopefully wear it quite lightly, I am extremely competitive and I want to do brilliantly both myself but also the business most actually most importantly, I just love being in a successful business and I think I get a lot of reward from taking something from A to B and making it significantly better and evidently better, and having a sense of we did that, I was part of that, and that's. That's the biggest buzz I probably get I've ever had in my career is being able to set, have a point of achievement rather than I've never found it anything like as rewarding just keeping something going, you know, maintaining something. And to be honest with you, at BBH, we had many, many good years. But my best years at BBH was when we'd actually had a bad time and we had to bring it back. And so, in some respects, although I don't think I enjoyed it at the time, but sometimes the downturns were quite useful because you could, you've got stuff to fix. So I probably what I've mainly learned, whether I've consciously pushed myself, what I definitely know is I need that sense of achievement and and the sense of I took it from here to here. That's really, really important to me.
1: Mm, So being able to see the impact you've had on something and say, I did that.
0: (laughs) I did that and go, whereas I just think something that's been successful and you've kept it going. I just, I genuinely, I, I know that's not easy, but I don't have anything like the same buzz out of that. I know it's still a job to do, but it doesn't, it doesn't give me anything like the same reward. So and it might be that rudder dare thing you mentioned at the beginning that I like fixing things.
1: You've got to have a lot of self-belief to do that as well, because you've, you must have to be okay with failure as well. Because you, if you're putting yourself in a difficult situation, it's difficult for a reason. How do you approach that personally? Yeah,
0: it's interesting because I never really think about failure in that respect. And it never crosses my mind because I think what I think is we're just going to make it better. And so rather than necessarily at the beginning of the journey thinking about, yeah, but how are we going to make it the best agency in town? You go, go, I'm not worried about that right now. I just need to make it better. And I think actually thinking about just general, even incremental improvement, I find that rewarding too. And recognizing all the wins you have to make something better. And I think there are wins, you know, obviously in our industry, we talk about wins in the sense of big account wins or you might win big at some awards or something. But actually the wins for me running an agency are almost much more interesting. Are oh, We hired that person, that'll make a difference to us. Or that person who was going to leave, they're not leaving now. Or the quality of the work on that account has gone from, I'm making it up a five out of 10 to six out of 10 or something. Those wins are the things that pro- give me a much more important to me almost on a day-to-day basis. And therefore I don't really think about it as almost as in such a macro way of going, Is it fixed? Is it great? Or is it not? It's almost the sort of, I can feel all those winds along the way, almost every day of the week in the office, you can feel those little winds building and those add up to hopefully a proper momentum in an agency. Um, So I guess it's weird. I don't ever think about it going wrong in that respect, because I think I'm not thinking about it in a big way. I'm thinking about all, all the little wins really.
1: I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it that you can break it down step by step and actually mm. it, by celebrating things along the way, you're actually just genuinely enjoying what you're doing rather than waiting for some sort of big award that you're going to win at the end of it and yeah, suddenly you're exactly. supposed to feel fantastic about everything again. So I think that's good. What that means is when you go into these agencies, you've really got to be scanning the horizon, knowing you know where you are at now and then working out where you need to be. So you need to have very clear direction of what success looks like. So when you, you know, when you went into Ogilvy, when you went into Leo Burnett, what was your process for working out what needed to be changed?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think agencies essentially, it's a tough business, but it's really simple. And so much of it literally comes back to the people. And so I think what I'm probably do is, you know, but not as sort of obviously as this, but I suspect I'm trying to understand the people in the business. And obviously, as part of that, the clients too. And almost that's the sort of, barometer for where for where the business is going and you're going a sense of where are the pockets that feel really good and positive and where are the things where you go i'm deeply worried about that and that's not right and we're not going to be great if we've got that going on so i think i'm probably probably mainly sort of almost trying to get a sense of the people and and as part of that not just their own qualities but also the cultural sense of the place in terms of the vibe and the the think the behaviors that sort of people are adopting like with all tiers, obviously, I, I, I might look at some of the numbers, but genuinely, I'm not that isn't the numbers sort of, you know, normally you've got a finance partner that can look after the numbers for you, and, and you know, so, so so I'm not that fussed about that. I'm just more, much more interested in spending time with different people and getting a sense of the business through through the people that work there and through the clients, and I think that then gives you a very clear sense of what to build on and what not to build with. So that's probably what I do first and foremost, and then. Start celebrating, and try and get those things to try and work out if those are indicative of what the agency could be as a whole rather than just pockets of strength.
1: Mm-hmm. You're looking for strengths as well as weaknesses and then thinking, okay, hey, that's, a, that's a strong thing we can build on it. And
0: probably mainly strengths. So, you know, when I came to Leo Burnett, for example, for years, I'd admired what Leo's have done with McDonald's for years. Genuinely, I used to think, even before I was here, that, you know, that you know, probably the best case history of, of a brand understanding. The British audience and its role within UK culture, stroke society. I think McDonald's has always been so good at that. So always admired that. So always thought that should be something we can build on. We need to understand that. That should be something which we can sort of almost ripple into the other clients we've already got, but also hopefully attract new clients too. And again, rather simplistically, that's essentially what we've done. You know, that's what we've done at Lears. That's where our successes come from: is recognizing what we do really well, at McDonald's. And then doing that for other clients who want something a bit like that for them. But you know, obviously appropriate to their category and to their audience. Mm,
1: I think that's a really good point. Cause I think the natural thing would to do would be look at the bad things and try and fix them instead of actually focusing on what's already going on well and trying to kind of roll that out further across things and actually look at, you know, why is that being successful and analysing that? Because I, I think people often struggle with analysing why something is successful. They can tell you why something's wrong, but they're not quite sure why something's working. So I, th- I think being able to analyse that is a real skill.
0: Uh, yeah, and I think one of the things I learned at Ogilvy, because obviously Ogilvy's part of a massive international agency network, but more importantly, part of WPP. So there's an incredible sort of, not exactly, part of it's almost the matrix, but it's almost just sort of, it, it can be quite amorphous trying to build a culture in that kind of s- sort of the environment. What we found ourselves doing, we use the expression quite a lot, is just be a beacon, just build a beacon. And beacons attract people that go so almost just build something and obviously good people are attracted to good stuff and so if you're building something interesting what you might find that stuff that isn't performing at the moment will start performing better because it's being given a role model it's been given a sort of a direction of travel and it might not be something you need to sort of get rid of or deal with in that respect it might be just needed a better direction and now you've created a beacon some of those problem areas to sort of respond to rather than fixating on how do I fix that bit of the problem. And you go, well, perhaps the problem was they hadn't got something to emulate. Perhaps that's what we've done at Leo's is sort of create a sense of beacon within the agency about what kind of work we want to do. And, you know, what's great is a lot of brilliant people who have obviously there were some, you know, brilliant people before, but a lot of people have joined us since 2019 because they sort of go, yeah, I want to be part. And then the great thing in agencies is it's all about the people. And so if you've got a lot of really good people, the chances are you've got a much you know much better chance of doing much better work, which is great because that attracts more good people. And off you go. Building a beacon rather than the whole time thinking about, I need to do surgery to this part of the business or whatever. It's a much more positive way to approach your life is looking for the good stuff.
1: And you have a very strong focus on teams. And I think at Ogilvy, there, there was a, you created a gang and then there was the squads at Lily why do you think that matters and and how do you go about creating that kind of team like kind of gang culture
0: to start with on a personal level i just love teams i just i love being part of a team i find that sort of what teams can achieve exciting i find it much more exciting having been part of team success than individual success i think there's also a thing which is again agencies because they're totally people businesses I think it's important that you have a group of people as a team leading it that represent very different types of people, different personality types, obviously the different disciplines that you have and you know the different skill sets that you need to make an agency successful. So they're represented at the top table, as it were. And so I think it almost is sort of to me it's almost a non negotiable, which is the you know, the only way you know, if someone said, Well, you know i want you to fix an agency but i don't really believe in you having a team around you i think i want it to be more about you and it's just not going to work it's just absolute nonsense it's almost you know it's just i wouldn't do it because every bone in my body goes the way we make agencies successful is through a really strong leadership team and that team should have lots of diversity at its heart but utterly united in terms of what the business is about the way we're going to do it the culture the values what matters to us what doesn't matter to us all that sort of and that takes time. That takes time, and to me, you you rightly need to invest time and and resources in making a team work. But I also think if you grow up in agencies, you also grow up on accounts. You know, you only do your best work when you're operating as a team. It never works with a sort of an individual sort of creative genius, or an individual. it doesn't work like that. It's always about the quality of the team is what delivers. I think you you grow up in agencies understanding in that, and I think running agencies should be no different.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, because a, a couple of questions off that. The first is do you think obviously agencies are very people focused and i think there's that old adage that the assets of an agency go up and down in the lift at the end of the day did you think that that approach is also the same for every business that perhaps is out sitting outside of advertising do you think that the kind of the people approach is still as important if you were running a manufacturing plant
0: it's difficult to say because obviously i've only ever worked in creative agencies that's all i've done and but I guess I have, obviously, one of the luxuries and genuine one of the joys of being in creative agency is you get to work with loads of other businesses. So you get to see into so many different industries, different businesses. It's, it's, it's a privilege. During my career, I think there has been a significant cultural shift, and I think it's a really positive one, that the nature of leadership has changed to being much more empathetic and inclusive, much less command and control. And... I think much more thought going into how do we look after, develop, encourage, motivate our people rather than just a sense of they're sort of probably really pleased to be here because they get paid and they get paid well and they've got career development. All that's important, but I think every business that I work with, you can see they're much more sensitive to being a sort of people-first kind of organisation. And I think that's obviously much better for everybody who works there. It doesn't mean that everyone necessarily does it As well as they could and i'm sure we could do it better but i think with agencies it's almost just like a sort of if you don't think like that you might as well pack up because you've got no chance we are purely our talent and therefore i often think in a way my job as ceo i often think my job really is talent manager and basically the most important thing i need to be doing is how am i building this agency brand and this business so it's most attractive to the best people in our industry well frankly, attracted to everybody in our industry. And then I'll, I get to choose who are the best ones and get them to come come and join us. And then I think the job then moves to, if you're a talent manager, is how do I make sure that when they're here, this is as fulfilling and as good, good work experience as they can have, so they don't want to go anywhere else. And that's it, really. That's all I need to do. If you've got that, you'll continue to do our best work for our clients, and hopefully they'll stay with us.
1: And so... If people are signed up to that, and I think most people would say having that kind of strong leadership and having everybody on on board would be a positive thing. Mm. But how do you actually do that in practice? Because I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to actually enact. And then also, how do you spot somebody that's not going to work out? And, you know, have you had to get rid of somebody that is perhaps not kind of singing from the same hymn sheet?
0: It's funny. I, again, I'm, I, I'm sorry if this causes offence, but I'm sort of sometimes I feel like when you go into a new business in a leadership position, it's almost like a sort of religious faith because you come in as this sort of leader, you basically want people to believe in the miracle that actually said so I'm gonna turn this around, I'm gonna do this, and everyone's gonna go on then. And so you what you're looking for is followers who will lean towards you and you go, Not everyone's gonna not everyone's gonna lean right in. So I'm looking for people that almost have, just have a faith in me, but I'm not gonna be able to perform a miracle to make them have that faith I just need that inherent faith in me so I think you spend a lot of time going as I said it's a big beginning is understanding who the people are and almost the people that are sort of naturally following you and again by the way that doesn't mean the other people aren't right for the business it's just some people will be naturally more drawn to you than others and that's, that's that's fine and I think then what you're trying to do is almost get a sense of positive things that are happening that make you get a sense of momentum building and then hopefully your group of followers become broader and broader in their numbers and then that's when the magic starts to happen because you really have got a, hopefully a group of very good strong people all facing the same direction and the winds just start to multiply and you're getting stronger i mean in terms of the second part of the question i think it becomes to be honest i think it becomes and i and i don't think it's quite important almost quite obvious the people that don't want to be part of it And I think it almost becomes self-selecting as people, if they want out. And I think it's quite an important thing to always have in the mind as a leader. Everyone chooses to come into the office every day. They don't have to. If you've got good people, it's really important to think that they're making an active choice to walk in those doors every day. And it's my job to make sure (laughs) they keep doing that. And if people are going, this isn't for me, I don't want to walk through those doors every day, that's fine too. At its broadest sense, an agency is just a big gang. It's just a big gang of people that believe in the same stuff, trying to do the same stuff, hopefully get on like working together etc mm.
1: so yeah i think that approach you can definitely see why it's successful now i'm going to play devil's advocate now yeah. i think the challenge with that is that you can end up with groupthink or that if somebody is kind of picking up on something and, and trying to, and criticizing an approach that they get sidelined and moved out and you're not one of us um now how do you make sure that that doesn't happen particularly because that's a very important skill for a creative agency that you need people with lots of different thinkers
0: yeah it's a really good question i think it's really important and i think also I, Almost worse than the group thing, is the thing as a CEO is that danger is everyone is because you're called the CEO. People think you've got the answer, haven't you? Because you're the CEO. And, and I absolutely don't. Obviously, I think the CEO's job is not to have the answers. If you've grown up in good creative agencies, which is you just know some of the best answers are incredibly left field and they'll come from someone who you wouldn't have expected to come from me. And I know it's a cliche about being a good listener, but I think there is a thing which is where you go. I'm always very open and looking forward to the person that hasn't really said something in a meeting or it's the most junior person in the room that seems a bit shy to say something. I love it when they talk because they'll say something and go, God, we haven't thought that. I think I'm instinctively, you find yourself quite quickly running away from group think situations where you go, because it feels too easy. Sometimes, I, think, I think you know that when you're working with creativity, doing great work is really hard. So sometimes if it's too easy and it's too smooth, it actually makes you feel quite anxious. So I think I'm always looking for different voices and then hopefully giving people the confidence that they want to be heard. I think the only thing other thing I'd say to that is when you've got a very clear sense of how you're going to improve as an agency. And, you know, you, it doesn't mean you don't have frank discussions about how you get there. And so you play the ball, not the man kind of thing, which is, you know, quite often, you know, you might preface what you're saying, but in the spirit of getting better, is that better than where we were last? You know, so I think you can definitely still have robust conversations, even if you're hopefully a gang that all like and get on with each other.
1: Talking about being a CEO then, you told Campaign in a profile this year that you said, I don't like the idea of being a CEO because of the role of the CEO. I don't know what that means. Uh, I just thought, can you just explore that a little with me? (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, I guess what I meant by that is, I find it a sort of very grand job title because I think probably when I was growing up, seeing the CEO job title, you, you, you think it's sort of something out of succession or something like that. And it seems like an incredibly sort of, sort of grand business title. And I guess it comes back to the fact that I've only ever operated in agencies and I know what a CEO and advertising agency is and I know what that takes. And to me, it's not that grand or succession-like. It's much more coming down to, Spending a lot of time with your customers, you know your clients, so that you understand what they want and how we then shape the agency to do the right thing for them and give them their best work and therefore hopefully the best results we can give them. Weirdly, I just see being a CEO and advertising agency as being as an extension of that ultimately. And yes, obviously, as I said, also worrying about the talent across the agency to making sure that you've got the best talent and stuff. But I guess it's just sort of going, I'm not actually sure what CEO meant to do otherwise, but I did. that's what I do.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm also massively pinching here from this campaign profile, which I will I will link in the notes so people can read it. So a lead consultant at the AAR, which is a new business intermediary in advertising called Rebecca Nunnally. She said that someone told me there are CEOs that lead from the front of the room and those that lead from the back. And she believes that you're the latter. And that means that it kind of builds a culture that empowers people to sort of step forward and lead and answer questions. And I'm just interested in how you get the balance between if you agree that you're a leader that leads from the back, but also leading from the front, because as you said, you're going in there, people are expecting you to lead the team. So how how do you get that balance right between making sure that people feel they can talk and come up with new ideas and do things, but also you still retain the authority to take the agency, the direction in which you think it needs to?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I like that idea of leading from the front or leading from the back. I think it is interesting because I think actually the truth is, is the best leaders flip. Between the times when you do one and times when you do the other. And, you know, there are times, for example, you know, again, as I mentioned right at the beginning, in terms of going through COVID for the agency, it was incredibly important that I led from the front in terms of the signals I was sending, in terms of what we wanted people to do, how we wanted them to work, the kind of culture. I found it obviously a horrific time for many, many people, but it was a fascinating time for being a leader because I think it definitely made me a much stronger leader. But you have to lead from the front in that sort of situation and almost give people a sense of direction and how we're going to operate as an agency and that it's going to be okay and we're shaping things. And, you know, in terms of my communication, got a lot better to the agency in terms of how often I'm regularly communicating to the agency. So much more leadership from the front in that kind of situation. But then being able to go, there's a time when our people should shine. And frankly, are the right people to be stepping forward. And actually, if I'm honest, in some situations, are way more convincing than me. I think. So what Rebecca's probably talking about there, obviously being a an intermediary and therefore running pitches, is obviously a client. Hopefully, is buying into me as the leader of an agency, but they're all, they're buying an agency, and therefore I want to put on show the amazing quality of people we've got here. And I'm really proud of them. And I'm I'm extremely confident. They'll do do a better job of presenting the work than I will. I just want them to know that and feel confident to do that. And that's probably more the leadership from the back, as it were, is is encouraging and, and encouraging them to move forward. And that's a brilliant learning experience for them. And I think almost ultimately it's sort of an instinct for when I need to lean right in and lead from the front. You know, inevitably, I think it's probably more in the difficult, challenging situations where people need to see clarity of leadership And have faith in you as a leader and you're there for them versus when you're actually going i'm confident in my people i don't need to dominate this they can do this and and as i said genuinely a lot of the time i just think they'll do a better job than me anyway so the right call for us as a business is to push them forward
1: Mm. how do you personally deal with the pressure i mean you mentioned earlier about that slight loneliness that there are decisions that you and only you will be able to make and it is a lot of pressure because now you have what three agencies under your uh, Mm. remit
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to say I detach well, but I don't think I'd probably do as well as I'd like to say. I I, I probably don't touch. And I think, weirdly, I think one of the things I... It's a weird thing to say, but my commute is actually weirdly important to me, I think, as a sort of buffers at the beginning and end of my day. And I'm mainly based in Chancery Lane, and I come into Waterloo, and I am really actually... The walk to the office and the walk back from the office, sometimes it's the best part of my day which can sound a bit sad, but it's actually weirdly because it's sort of, I'm on my own. I can neither listen to music. I can think. I can, And and so I think creating my own space is probably quite an important way of dealing with it and therefore being able to think things through without the noise of general business around you. I think that's probably quite helpful. I think I definitely do my best thinking in those moments when I'm actually not in the thrust of the business, as it were, in terms of everything that's going on. I also think I think there's a sort of with experience there is a sense of we've all been through tough times at work and things going wrong and things not being right and i think you sort of know that you've come through those times and it doesn't make it necessarily easy But you go i just have that inherent sense as i've probably been through worse than this i wouldn't necessarily even recall what those things are but i just go it's fine so i think it's almost a sense of I back myself in those situations because I think I've come through those before and so it'll be fine. And I think as long as I keep, as I say, moments so I can keep thinking clearly about stuff, I believe I'll get to good solutions so it'll be okay. It'll be as good as it probably could be. So I think that's how I deal with those things. So there's a sort of self-belief, I suppose, that it's business. Tough stuff happens. Things go wrong. It's okay. But it's not the end of the world. You just have to respond.
1: Great. And then... Looking back over your career, what is your biggest leadership lesson?
0: So my biggest leadership lesson probably actually came at BBH. And it wasn't like a moment, but it was a sort of dawning realisation that actually, and I think the word everyone would use now is about authenticity. Everyone would say about authentic leadership. And I think I thought I needed to be more like a stereotype of the kind of leader that I'd probably grown up working for. Which isn't comfortable for me. It's not comfortable to be much more of a sort of command and control kind of leader. I mean, there are times when you have to go there, but it's not, that's not really something I enjoy doing. It's not natural to me. And I think, therefore, probably what I had a moment of realization was what's got me the success I'd already had so far, what's got me there is me and what I'm about. And therefore, believing that being authentic to me and therefore just taking that up a level is what I should feel comfortable doing. And frankly, even if it hadn't been the route to success, it's just a nice place to be when you're being yourself. But actually, obviously, the truth is that the best leaders are always authentic, because it's just such a full on job. That it's impossible to be inauthentic for more than a few months, and incredibly stressful. What does come naturally to me, and I think has helped me massively is empathy. I think Again, one of the reasons I've been successful before I got to management roles is I've always been able to have good empathy with the people I work with or my clients. And I just need to do that on a bigger scale when, I run, when you're running an agency and, and almost authentic leadership and I think almost doing brackets. There's a bit of empathetic leadership, which I think is hopefully true to me. Great.
1: Right, thank you. You've now taken on Publicist Polk as part of your remit, and they, according to Campaign were a four, another kind of below average performing agency. So you're about to start doing um, hopefully the same, you know, replicate what you've done at Leah Bennett at Publicist Polk albeit you have three different agencies you're now looking after. So I don't know whether you feel like you're a bit <laughs> going to be spread a bit thinly. Are you looking forward to relish that challenge? Are you thinking, oh God, here we go again?
0: Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I think when I was offered it, you know, they, I was told, do, do you want to think about it? I said, definitely think about it. I mean, you know, literally I didn't even think about it at all. I was straight in, I was, was really excited about it because I do inherently love what we do. And I also do obviously back myself. I know the sort of things you need to do to make an agency work. So now I was very excited about that. And I think I was coming back to the team point. I think at Leo's, we've built a really strong team and we've got very good strength and depth now. And so to be honest, you know, so for example, I became Group CEO with that new role and we've just made it Leo's Carly Abner, the CEO. So I know I've got someone who's very strong, who can take on a lot of the sort of the day-to-day CEO-ship of Leo's. And therefore, I have the capacity to be able to do a bit more and therefore lean into publicist poke. And weirdly, to your point, it doesn't faze me what the starting point is. It's almost the same. It's the same job, which is just be clear about what the agency is about. And then let's build from there. Sounds easy, doesn't it? <laughs> but obviously, it's hard work every day. At its core, we are simple businesses. And I just need to make it work.
1: Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Charlie. I'm excited to see what you do at Publicist Poke. Good luck.
0: Thank you very much, Kate. Good to see you.
1: Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.